Please turn with me to Joel chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 27. I had initially planned on finishing chapter 2 this week, but just unable to do so. And I think the last several verses there in Joel 2 deserve their own treatment. So we're going to be looking at 18 through 27 today. Before we do so, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Ask for his help with the text. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we are mindful that as we read it, sometimes it is difficult for us, not only because of just our inability to understand your truth, but also our sin gets in the way and we don't want to understand it because we know that it stands in the way of how we perceive the way our lives should be. And so, Lord, we pray that you break down both of those obstacles, both our sin, please convict us of that, and our lack of understanding, Lord, open our minds that we might see the truth of your word, that we might hear from you and learn, that we might be instructed as to what we are to know about you and how we ought to act. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So as Todd mentioned, as many of you know, R.C. Sproul passed away this week on Thursday. Uh, Caught me very much off guard and affected me quite a bit, a lot more than I would have thought something like that would have affected me. Um, I never met him personally, sadly, um, but I feel like I knew him because of the many numbers of hours that I've spent reading his books, many of his books. Listened to him lecture, watched him on video. Um, he's just all, he's prolifically out there. If you're not familiar, you can look him up on any, any medium now and watch him teach. He's incredible. Uh, to say that he was an important part of, the found, of my formation as a believer and a pastor would be the understatement of the year. Um, the last years of Dr. Sproul's life were very difficult for him. He was uh, on oxygen because of a disease called COPD. Um, And so when he taught these last few years, he would literally be up on the stage with oxygen. Uh, He wasn't able to teach much uh, because of that, but um, and his general health as a whole was declining. He wasn't able to stand for long periods of time. He just had difficulty. It didn't stop him from doing what he did best, teaching difficult things of the faith in a very simple way, answering questions without fear, And with vigor and running headlong into defending the truth against the harshest of critics. That was his life. So as I prepared this mess, the message this week, it caused me to reflect upon life in general and how we, like Dr. Spro, decline with age and disease and different things as they become, as they just pile upon us. We become shells of our former selves in many ways, even as I teach the high school students, I look back and I think I can't believe I had that much energy and vitality, and I'm not even old. The enemies of the world, sin and death, slowly begin to take their toll on us. They do. So in the passage today, we're going to see the undoing of that. The people of Israel have just experienced this horrible locust plague that we've been talking about and Uh, It's eliminated their agriculture, their economy, as well as their worship. It's left nothing for them. They were decimated on all accounts. 
this is representative of the judgment of the Lord, as we've read. Yet the Lord has called them back to himself, as we looked at in the passage last week. So in our text today, the Lord is going to bring abundant blessing to the people, restoring the years that the locusts had eaten. We long for this, don't we? At least we should. This is the hope of the gospel, the restoration that we'll one day have in Christ, that sin and death no longer have a hold on us. We'll be set free. Even now we experience this just a little bit, but we will experience this to the full one day. And so we're going to consider this text in three points. I'll borrow these points actually from uh, Dr. Pommel Robinson uh, from his commentary, just in name. I didn't use the substance of his points, but I did like the the way he laid it out. And the points are the blessing of restoration, the response to restoration, and the climax of restoration. So with that, I'll read the text, Joel chapter 2, 18 through 27. Please stand with me as we read from God's Word. Joel chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. And the Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. Fear not, ye beasts of the field, for the pastures of the wilderness are green, the tree bears its fruit, the fig tree and vine give their full yield. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain, as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. And my people shall never be put to shame. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So remember, last week we talked about the day of the Lord, which represented this crescendo, which which came to this, the judgment of the Lord, this, this ultimate judgment of the Lord. We see a picture of that in the first part of chapter 2. We see pictures of that throughout Scripture as the Lord talks about this day of the Lord. Even in the midst of this judgment, remember, at the end, there was a call to repentance from the people, or to the people, from the Lord. He called them to repent. R.C. Sproul, to quote him again, I may do that a few times today, once said, God doesn't just throw a life preserver to a drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea, pulls a corpse from the bottom of the sea, takes him up on the bank, 
breathes into him the breath of life and makes him alive. That's how Dr. Sproul saw God's plan of salvation. And I think this text brings us to that point. Whereas in the last few weeks, we've seen Israel at its absolute lowest, experiencing the judgment of God from this locust swarm. In today's text, we're going to have a complete turnaround. And it's from God, not Israel. While we read calls to repentance, we don't have evidence that that necessarily happened. We don't read that Israel repented, then God blessed them. Nor do we see the people picking themselves up, dusting off the destruction and beginning to rebuild before God comes and intervenes. They're not meeting God halfway in the rebuilding project. So why does God come to his people? Because he loves them. Because he desires glory. and He is most glorified through the deliverance of his people. God went to his people even while they were suffering and offered them blessing. It wasn't because they had become better people or because they had somehow met him halfway again. It's because he is good. All throughout scriptures we see God coming down to the aid of his people in order to save them from the bottom of the ocean, as it were, without a hope in the world. He still comes to them. And we see it here. We're going to see it in our own lives as well. And so with that, the first point, the blessing of restoration. Verse 18. The Lord, then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. He became jealous. Jealousy is a strong emotion. One that is for the Lord, this act of jealousy or this, this uh, emotion of jealousy is because he's very loyal to his people. He's very loyal and jealous even for his own glory. The idea of his people becoming a mockery to the nations springs the Lord into action here. Remember, look at verse 17. The people were praying, spare, spare your people, O Lord. Make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. And so, rather than his people be a mockery, he saves them. He won't have his name dragged through the mud, nor will he have his people be an object of ridicule for long. He won't have it. So look at verse 19. What does he do to fix that? He answered and said to his people, Behold, I'm sending you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied. And I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. So he sends them provisions, grain, wine, and oil, not only for their sustenance, but also for their worship, for the grain offering, for the drink offering. Most importantly, they're not going to be in a reproach to the nations anymore. What did he do? He answered the prayers of his people. Verse 20. I will remove the northerner far from you. Drive him into the parched land. The vanguard to the eastern sea. The rear guard to the western sea. He's going to, what does he do? He's going to not only bring them provisions, but he's going to remove this invading army. Probably talking about the locust here. Could be a human army. Either way, the Lord is intervening. From the vanguard, which is the front portion of the invading army, the first to attack, to the rear guard, the entire army is being eliminated, being thrust into the sea. Several times in Scripture, we read about an army from the north invading this 
the, this idea of the northerner uh, being removed. We hear about the northern army invading Israel. It could point to an end times army. It could just point to something very near to them, like the locust. We're not sure. Again, it could be both. But a lot of times in Scripture we see this kind of already not yet motif, where the text has a very near fulfillment and a very future fulfillment as well. Either way, the thrust of the text is clear, I think. The army is going to be cast into the sea. It's going to be removed from Israel. Well, for us, what do we do? Well, first of all, we don't want to put our own enemies in this camp, right? Uh, pick out the enemies that he's going to, uh, to thrust into the sea. You just wait till my father gets here, that kind of thing. We're not doing that. Uh, however, there is a real sense in which that's true, right? Particularly when it comes to our greatest enemies, sin and death. What does Scripture say about sin? Well, it's been removed from us as far as the east is from the west. It's an interesting parallel here in this passage. We know that Jesus defeated death with his resurrection, yet we still must die. However, we must never think that just because the Lord tarries in his returning to us, that he has somehow given up on us and that we've missed the boat. Imagine Israel in the days leading up to the Lord intervening in this situation. It was difficult for them. It could have been a long time. For them to have to wait, no food, no drink, no worship, it would have been incredibly difficult. Yet, the Lord came in his perfect timing. We wait even now, all of us, for the eternal blessing that we're going to have. We know that we will receive it when we die. That's the hope that we have, and that the promises of God will be fulfilled. But that doesn't mean that he isn't blessing us. Even now, remember, Christ is right now interceding on our behalf so that we might be more like him, so that we might see his kingdom come to this earth. We have been given responsibility even as being part of this blessing of restoration that he is bringing to the earth even now. So let's do so while we're here. And how are we to do so? Well, verses 21 and 22 give us a little bit of clue. Fear not. O land, be glad and rejoice. Fear not, because the pastures are green, the trees bear fruit. Everything is returning, just as the Lord would have it. Fear not, he has done great things. We need only be faithful to what he is calling us to do. What is he planning to do through us? Great things. He's planning to bear fruit. That's his pattern. So we should hope and we should trust in that. And with that, we look at the response to blessing. Verses 23 and 24. Be glad, O children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given the early rain for your vindication. He has poured down for you abundant rain, the early and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors shall be full of grain. The vats shall overflow. With wine and oil. What are we commanded to do here? We're commanded to be glad. Because things are being restored. Now just quickly. Just a little bit on verse 23. Much has been made of verse 23. Much has been made of verse 23. 
uh, with the early and this idea of early reigns and latter reigns. Uh, entire movements within uh, Pentecostalism have been used have used this verse in order to establish some of their practices, um, particularly in combination with verses 28 and 29 to show how God's spirit will manifest itself in the last days. Of course, uh, this involves charismatic gifts of the spirit. Those gifts in the latter times are supposed to be better and more vibrant than those gifts in the early times. Um, I don't agree with those interpretations of this text, and I think the text is very plain here. What was going on in the difficult times of the locust, drought and plague, what's happening now that he's restoring everything, rain. Um, I think that rain is this picture of how he's going to restore the earth. Literally, what's going to result from that? Well, the grain and the wine productions will be full again. Um, and the command here is to be glad. If you have questions about the uh, those ideas, we can talk about it later. But I just wanted to note that because there is a lot about those verses that is out there. But for us, we need to focus on this concept of being glad that this is happening. And I think from the outside, we can say, yes, it would be easy to follow that commandment, right? To see the things that he's done for us and to be glad, to look at all the things that he's done, particularly in light of what was going on, to be glad for the things that we have, then why don't we? Why don't we follow this commandment? Why are we always looking for the Lord to give us more than what He has given us, to make things different than the way He's made them? Make sure you understand, I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray and ask the Lord for provision or help in times of need. Absolutely, we should do that. But that said, I'll be glad for the things that we have right now. If not, why? Were Adam and Eve happy in the garden? Don't you think we would, I mean, can you imagine how many of us would just love to trade our current realities for those of Adam and Eve? To go into the garden and say, oh, you can just eat of every single tree except for that one. Don't eat it. But everything else, go, be free, tend the garden, have fun. Wouldn't that be nice? No cares, no worries. All the fruit you could eat except for that one. Don't eat that. Isn't it that one that would always make us want more than what we currently had? You can have everything, just not that. But I want everything, is what we would say. We'd like to think that we're better than Adam and Eve, but we're really not. We're the same. Just look at our lives now. We want more than what we have because we think God is somehow holding out on us. So we have trouble with this commandment. We aren't glad. We aren't satisfied when we should be. We can look at any facet of our lives and see a lack of satisfaction that we have. It's just true. We have trouble trusting what God is doing in our lives currently. We want his blessings and we want them on our terms. Absolutely, 100% on our terms. And we should know better. God doesn't operate on our terms. He operates on his terms. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. This is a passage that is often used to attempt to get God to operate on our terms. Philippians chapter 4, starting at verse 10. Paul writing to the church, 
the church was supporting him, and this is his response to that. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how ought to be, or I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What is the secret that he's talking about? The secret that he's talking about is being content in all things, being glad in everything, being glad when the locusts have wrecked your entire country, being glad when he's bringing about restoration to your country. Verse 13 does not mean that God is going to bless whatever I do. This is not our license to do things and then receive blessing for doing them. This is our reminder that we have been blessed. Therefore, we should be glad. We cannot be more blessed than we are right now in Christ Jesus. The fact that he has blessed us with eternal life, it's incredible. So no matter our current situation, we have more than we'll ever need. That's the key. That's the secret that Paul's talking about. That's what the Lord's trying to drive home to the Israelites here in Job. Be glad. So how can we be glad? God has already blessed us and we didn't deserve it. Why shouldn't we be glad? We can't think of one single reason. We are to share this gladness with the world as well. The world is taught to do what? Never be content. Step on whoever you can in order to get to that place of contentment, which doesn't actually exist. So keep stepping on people. Keep making others' lives miserable in order to be content. And then you, in turn, are going to do that as well. The Lord or the world speaks of contentment, but it doesn't actually have any. There's no source for it. The only thing that the world finds contentment is is things that are going away. We have a very different message. You aren't at the top. You can't be. Jesus, who was at the top, chose to be at the bottom to save us. That's the message that we have. Even while we were yet enemies, he saved us. That is the message we have for a world that is seeking contentment. There is none except in Jesus Christ. How can we be glad, brothers and sisters, in Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the climax of this blessing, verses 25 through 27. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army, which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people shall never be put to shame. You shall know that I am in the midst of Israel, and that I am the Lord your God, and there is none else. 
and my people shall never be put to shame. I will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten. This great army that I sent among you, I'm going to restore the damage that they did to you. Some may look at this and say, well, what kind of quirky God do we serve? One that knocks down all of your toys and then sets them back up again for you. I've often heard that from the unbeliever, right? Well, that's weird that God would do that. People who think those things don't understand the depth of our sin and our depravity that we somehow deserve to remain unjudged by our Creator. That's not the case. They don't understand our depravity, then they definitely won't understand the blessing that we have in His restoration of us. Do we deserve to have the locust destroy us? Absolutely. Do we deserve to have Him restore us? No. Yet He does so anyway. Look at verse 26. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. Hopefully that takes you back to Genesis. You shall eat in plenty, undoing that curse. And praise his name because he has done wondrously with you. Isn't it a miracle that we weren't destroyed along with everything else? We weren't because he is merciful. In verse 27, you shall know that I am in the midst of Israel. He is among his people. He was then, he is now. Not only is he here with us now, he actually came to earth as one of us. The Son of God dwelt among men so that he might save his people from their sins and from death. Locusts are one thing, sin and death are quite another. Yet Jesus died and was hung on a cross to defeat sin and was risen from the dead to defeat death and now gets guess who gets to share in the victory we do yet we did nothing that's the miracle he has dealt wondrously with us brothers and sisters this is why we can read i will restore to you the years that the locusts have eaten and we can believe it to be true this is why another quote from Dr. Sproul which has real meaning now and it's kind of funny to read this is years before he died he said this he said you can grieve for me the week before I die if I'm scared and if I'm hurting but when I gasp the last fleeting breath and my immortal soul flees to heaven I'm going to be jumping over fire hydrants down the golden streets I love the image, but I have no idea why he chose fire hydrants. Uh, That's just Dr. Sproul in a nutshell, pretty much, to say something like that. Why did he say that? Why was he able to say that with such conviction? Because he knew that Jesus would restore him. That the locust indeed ate him away while he was here on this earth. But now he's running through the streets, hurtling over random objects in the street. What about now? Does this promise have bearing for us today? Absolutely. Though our bodies waste away, our souls do not. 
We are constantly being made new. Though we were dead in our trespasses, we are now alive in Christ. He's causing us to walk more and more in His ways, to think about Him more and more, to learn more and more. If you are His, He is making you new. Not only you, but the whole world is being made new even now. And he uses us, his people, to be agents of that restoration and redemption. Sharing the gospel in the world, the only hope for restoration and redemption, the gospel. Sharing that in word and in deed, in all that we do, to see this great restoration come to pass. And so, brothers and sisters, in conclusion... We have this great message of restoration. What are we doing with it? We want to see the years that the locusts have eaten restored to our friends and family, do we not? We want that. Do we want to see Murray restored? Do we want to see it be what it could be? Absolutely. Let us be one who always has this story of redemption on our lips. And it's very easy this time of year to do so. This time of year is all about Jesus. Even the unbeliever celebrates Christmas. They may not know why, but they love Christmas. Tell them what it's about. Let us do what we can do with our resources as well to see this come about in tangible ways in this community that we live in, to see real restoration and redemption come about. Let us never forget to be glad in the blessings that we have. We have more than we deserve and far more than we could ever exhaust. And so let us be glad and share that gladness with the world around us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, We are thankful for your goodness to us. But Lord, we do struggle to be glad. We somehow look at the other things that we think we should have. um, Because that's what we do. But you love us anyway. So Lord, help us to keep our eyes on you, the author and perfecter of our faith. To not look to the left or to the right, but only to you. You have provided us with All that we will ever need, even abundantly so. You have filled our cups to overflowing. So Lord, help us to walk with you, to share your hope of restoration and redemption with a dying world. To be glad in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.